Welcome to The Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning independent pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome, Compounding World, and thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of The Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast. I am Mike Delisio, your host of the podcast, along with Sebastian Dennison. Welcome to 2020. Welcome to 2020, Seb. Um, couldn't think of a better way to kick things off as I stare at four books that have the word testosterone written all over them. Uh, obviously, this episode is going to be featured on men's health, and we could not think of a better guest to have on the podcast, but a member of our clinical services team for almost 23 years. Bruce Biondo. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us on the Mortar and Pestle. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. I appreciate your asking. This is going to be awesome, Bruce. Um, we've always focused on menopause. We talk about BHRT and, and how it pertains to the female population. But we can't ignore ourselves, right? The, right? the huge segment of the population that could potentially be impacted by low T and what that means and, and the years of research that you've poured into into your work here at PCCA, uh, you've always had a special place um, relating to men's health and, and always acted as one of our specialists on, on board. So I know Sebastian's going to ask you so many specific questions in terms of how you got here and the, the level of research and the amount of information you. that you've dedicated to patients. But uh, this is going to be pretty much a, a 180 or a 360, I should say, into the world of low testosterone and men's health. Thank you. Ready to go. So we were chatting just before we started the, the podcast, and you said you started back as a guest consultant here. You were called up out of the blue. Come on down. Help us out. That's correct. Back in uh, 1997, um, I had become a member, compounding member, uh, right around 1990. And uh, I was always thrilled to death to be a member. I always appreciated calling. As a matter of fact, Dave Sparks was a consultant that I always asked for back Back then, Dave was working the phones. And so I was thrilled to death whenever they called me. I said, are you sure? Are you sure you, you, you're calling me to come out and answer questions, the same kind of questions I always call in and ask? So I was thrilled to death. And uh, when I got out here, I found out it was kind of a different world, you know, kind of a different world because they had hundreds of compounders all over the country asking questions. And many of them were asking questions about that things I had not personally compounded at that time. So it was a tremendous learning experience. At the same time, it, it, uh, it fed into my, uh, my interest in sharing information. I'd always, as a community pharmacist, that always been important to me. How do you share information? How do you explain things to doctors? How do you explain things to patients? So I found that, that sense of uh, being in a position where people are asking questions and asking me, and could I get an answer? I found that very challenging, and so, uh, in an early on point, I realized there was a lot to learn and there was a continuing growth experience, but I, w I was just thrilled to do it. And so it is now going on 23 years of uh, my doing that. And, and I know we were going to talk about men's health, but it seems as though you have a passion for teaching, speaking directly to that, like not just taking on that role of answering questions, but you're one of our, one of our prolific preceptors with respect to the pharmacy community. Yeah, one of the things I found about myself that, uh, that I really like doing, I really like teaching. Uh, so if I hadn't been in, in a pharmacy in a, in a classroom, I perhaps could have been put in a, put in a classroom. And so I got started as a preceptor 
I don't recall exactly when, but, but uh, approximately 35, 38 years ago, something like that. And uh, so it's preceptor for the University of Houston, and I enjoyed that. And I, I enjoyed being, when I was in a community pharmacy role, to be a preceptor and have students. I, I, local, at that time, it was just the schools here in Houston, University of Houston, Texas Southern University. And I, so I brought that when I came out here. And, and so to me, it, it's, it's one of the, uh, the great things that, uh, about doing what I do. One of the things I, I enjoy the most, which is being a preceptor, working with really, really bright people, and uh, particularly, uh, you know, we've always had great, great pharmacists, but particularly when they, up, they upped the grade and all the schools went to PharmD, then the quality of the students really went up. And, and, and so my particular interest in working with students greatly went up at that time. So it's one of the things I really, really enjoy doing, continue to enjoy. I think anyone who's actually come in contact with you knows your passion for teaching and understands just how, you're, how well you're connected to the students and, and to the faculty. So we, we really appreciate that. That's something that I, I'm, I kind of enjoy being part of because I, I get to see you doing it and I'm learning from you, so thank you. Um, but what other passions do you have? Because we know you're a singer, we know you're, you're an outdoorsman, <laughs> we know you, you're, there's just a ton of things. But I think know. my wife would say I'm probably an ESPN addict. So I'm a big sports fan. Yeah. So uh, uh, particularly college sports, and, and so that's a big thing with me. I grew up in Louisiana. Some of people know that. And I was an LSU fan from the time I was about eight years old and nine years old. And while I went to the University of Houston, that's my primary loyalty. LSU has always been right there behind it. So I was thrilled to death to see the Tigers win. So I would say that. Uh, sports has always been one of my major interests. Politics, history, those are some of the other things I enjoy doing. True renaissance man. So. <laughs> but I know um, a lot of people are kind of like, all right, let's, let's get to the meat. So um, since 1997, you came on board full-time quite quickly after that. Um, in 1999, you actually did a talk, which really no one had touched upon prior to that. And I think this was kind of the kickoff. Interesting how that happened. We were just beginning, like in 1998, for example, to, to feature female hormone presentations. It was just kicking off, BHRT, compounding for it. And uh, I worked with a fellow, uh, worked closely with a fellow at the time who was responsible for doing most of the seminars. And I said, you know, what about guys? We're not doing anything about guys. And frankly, I didn't know that there was, what there was to do with guys. I, all I knew was, it must be something. We're about half of the population. Why don't we look around? Turns out that a few books, a couple of books, had just come into PCCA around that time. One was uh, a from a physician from England who had been one of the key people in getting this whole thing about low testosterone in men started, a, man, a doctor named Malcolm Carruthers. At the same time, there was a physician from Pennsylvania named Eugene Shippen who had put out a book uh, that, that year. Uh, testo treating testosterone. So uh, that book was called Testosterone Syndrome. What happened to me was I read the book by the physician from England. I read the book by Dr. Shippen. And then I began to look to see if there was any clinical data out there. And really, there was not a lot of clinical information. So I found some. And what I found was very encouraging. You know, I'd say, okay, there can some concern about prostate cancer, but that's kind of explained. There's some concern about cardiovascular health, but that's kind of explained. So what's the problem? Why isn't anyone doing more with this? Why isn't anyone doing something 
with what appears to be a real need. I found one review article from an endocrinologist at Mercer in Atlanta, Mercer Medical School in Atlanta, and she covered most of the topics that were known at the time, most of the concerns, what are the symptoms of uh, men in low with low testosterone, um, what are the concerns about treating men with testosterone, and what's the outcome. I read that several times. I said, there's th clearly something here. So uh, it's, it started with that notion, just what is there that we could present to our members that they don't maybe know at this time? And, and the response was pretty good. People were interested. They, you know, People suspected that there was something that men go through. My wife will tell me to this day that she and one of her good friends talked about, there must be something guys go through. It's not just women. You know, there must be something hormonal about what happened to men, and essentially... It wouldn't uh, be fair, right? <laughs> we obviously have to be impacted with something. <laughs> so we, we learned that, there, that there's an analogous situation. It's not exactly the same thing as female menopause, but the majority of men will go through low testosterone, and they will be symptomatic, and the majority of men can be treated, and pretty much that, that's, this, that's the uh, basis of it. So, Bruce, was this your introduction to your devotion to the profession where it pertained to men's health? Because I know, without getting too far ahead in the timeline, there was obviously some hair loss treatment formulas that you helped work on um, and other aspects of men's health. So what else piqued your interest besides just low testosterone? Well, the, the, the things that go through, that men go through that are unique, as you mentioned, um, alopecia, you know, hair mm -hmm. loss, that's certainly one of them. Hormone related. The other things that are not necessarily hormonally related, but the guys go through erectile dysfunction, for mm -hmm. example, uh, prostate issues. That is a very unique thing that men go through, and it's a very common thing. So I began to just look and see what do you have for erectile dysfunction that's unique? What are the treatment options? How, do, how does this happen? If you know what happens, then you begin to see what you can do to treat it. So uh, the, 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 the things that if you just think about aging men's health, those are the things that really interested in me. So testosterone is certainly a part of it, but other elements of it, what happens in prostate issues, what happens to erectile dysfunction, what happens in some other unique conditions, some, a condition called Peyronie's disease. Those were the things that I also found really interesting to get into, find out what's there, what can we do about it? So. In 1999, we did our, one of our first PCCA symposiums on testosterone and men's health. You were our speaker. And since then, so in the uh, following 21 years now, we're into 21 years, you've, you've delved in a lot more because most people think like, oh, we're pretty simple. We have one major hormone. We just slap some testosterone on us and away mm -hmm. we go. Right. But it's really not that simple. I know you delve into primary, secondary hypogonadism. Right. You, you talk about concomitant issues. Right. Um, take us through what happened from 99 and, and, and the development of some of these tools you've come up with and some of the different things that you, that, that you think are imperative that people need to understand about the practice without necessarily giving us a four-hour lecture. Right. To, to, somewhat to your point, um, early on I was looking for a lot of clinical information and I came across a, a name of a book in print and they just referred to the book as called Testosterone, nothing 
the book Testosterone, what book are they talking about? And eventually found out. I am actually uh, have with me right now the third edition. It wasn't the third edition I bought. I bought an early edition. I bought a used version. And it's, it's like if you were taking a PhD course on testosterone, this would be your textbook. So it's heavily indexed. It's very much like a textbook. But I found several key things in there that, that made it much more interesting from my standpoint. For, for example, uh, you know, you think about testosterone, low testosterone, how does that happen, you know, and what are the factors? And so I began to look at what happens in the endocrine system, what happens in the hypothalamus and the pituitary. And I recall to this day uh, when I came across a piece of information about what happens in the brain relative to estrogen and that how, how that affects the production eventually of testosterone. So for example, you have the messenger hormones coming from the hypothalamus and the pituitary, and then that messenger's LH and FSH go down to the, testo go to the testes. And I just found it fascinating that estrogen was involved, that estrogen dominated that conversation about how do we send out these messenger hormones. Well, that opened up for me the idea of what kind of treatments would you look at? Would you look at more treatments than, than testosterone, for example? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so over the years, a lot of that has been explored. You know, now most people recognize that a selective estrogen receptor modulator, CIRM, like clomiphene, could be used in men's health. People recognize that an aromatase inhibitor, such as anastrozole, could be useful, not just to lower estrogen levels, but also to stimulate testosterone production. So those are things that made it a lot more interesting for me personally that, you know, kind of uh, sharpened my desire to learn more about HCG. How does HCG work? Where does it work? And how does that stimulate production of not only testosterone, but involved in, in sperm production? So you put that in, you have a, you have a, a, a much better understanding of the endocrine system and how that works relative to testosterone, relative to male fertility. Talking about the endocrine system, when I started working here in 2011, I remember you walking around the building, and you're a walker and a talker, Bruce. Uh, <laughs> if anyone's ever been in this building, they, they know that you're one of the consultants that will roam and chat yeah. and have these conversations. After nine years of listening to you here and there, I became much more knowledgeable on the endocrine <laughs> system because you tend to grab a lot of these calls. And I think it's important for a lot of our listeners to know is that you, and maybe I'm speaking on your behalf, but you tend to take a lot of these calls focused on men's health. Yeah. Um, over, over the decades that you've helped out a lot of our members, are there any stories that pop up that you just, you remember certain patients or certain people that potentially were trouble cases that you help work with them uh, where you notice a tremendous benefit of customized medication? Well, I always remember one particular thing. Uh, you know, I don't remember all the, call, all the calls. Uh, I remember a lot, there's a lot of discussion. But I always remember one time a guy telling me something that to this day it'll have an impact just my thinking of it. He was talking about his father and learning about low testosterone, and he told me, thank you for giving my father back to me. I'll never forget that. Yeah. It's pretty powerful stuff. And I think we, we've heard that, too, from other either pharmacists, members of ours, whether or not it was a physician as well, talking about getting your life back, using those words 
not realizing the full impact on what hormones can do to the human body, yeah. but also the psyche as well. So it's, it's really interesting to see or to hear more about male andropause and the fact that you've devoted a lot of your professional career towards this. Um, with that being said, you know, 23 years experience simply, uh, obviously covering different topics as well, but most, most of it dedicated towards low testosterone, men's health, ED, hair loss, et cetera. What do you see the future? And where, do you, where are you looking a lot at certain things right now? Because I know we came out with a Trevis a couple years ago. That was a base designed for the delivery of testosterone transdermally. Is, is there a next step or is there something that you're looking at towards the future where people may have missed out on low T 23 years ago? I don't say, think this is necessarily a treatment option, but I think that what is often missing in our healthcare is education from an early on stage. In other words, if we could take the term wellness and say, what does wellness mean? And if we could develop systems to better educate people at an earlier point, then I think we would be much healthier down the road. So from my standpoint, uh, one of the things that, again, remains really compelling to me is how do you educate people to take care of themselves when they are 30, 35, 40, 45, so that perhaps they don't become overweight, perhaps they don't get high blood sugar, they don't become hypogonadal. What are the things you could do early on? Those are the things that, that is the biggest area in my mind that it is still underdeveloped. They, I don't know whether the medical system doesn't get paid sufficiently for wellness care, but I know what we often see is people waiting until they have a medical condition that requires treatment. That could be uh, uh, metabolic syndrome, for example, being overweight, having high blood pressure, high blood sugar, high triglycerides, et cetera. But what if we had done a better job earlier on talking about what you can do? So uh, the, a component part to me that's always been important, and uh, for example, when I have written stuff about how do you treat this? One of the things I usually start with is what you can do individually. And I, and I know you, you believe in this, but I believe in this. You know, I believe in what I can do individually for myself. And I think that if I were in a community pharmacy today, I would be doing a lot on, uh, that I could, doing my best to educate patients to find out how they were getting the best information so that they could do more to prevent things that would happen, that will happen down the road. So you're looking at uh, engaging the patient population earlier, so Absolutely. not at yeah. not at right at, at crisis time. Yeah. Hey, have you been thinking about this in ten years? This might yeah. be coming along. Now, speaking of that, we've got three, four hundred people listening to this right now. What's going to happen is the very first thing is they're going to pick up the phone and say, "I, I got I." Bruce, I want to pick your brain. Bruce, I want to ask you a quick question. Mm -hmm. And that can be very time consuming and you're not always available. Have you, where can we kind of pick up some, some of this information from you without yeah. necessarily having to have, hold you on the phone for 22 years and get all of your info? Some time ago, I, I, I began to look at clinical information. It's always, you know, I want to check, see what does the literature say? Yeah. So. Early on, I, uh, I just collected files. If you go to my desk today, I still have a lot of paper files. Then I began to 
shore articles in other ways, and obviously I don't do it that way anymore. But from an early point, I realized there is good clinical information. I want to be able to access that information. So along with that, I want to uh, tell the listeners about something we have recently updated, and it's a PCCA document. It's called the Men's Health Reference Guide, Men's Health Reference Guide. And the PCCA number for this document is 94004. Again, 94004. Over the years, I've looked at hundreds of articles. I don't know how many, but we, we cataloged over 700, all related in some fashion to men's health. So in this particular document, we recently spent two or three weeks just updating it to make it more user-friendly. So I want to tell you a little bit about it. Again, it's PCCA document number 94004. You open it up, uh, go to the third page, you'll see men's health reference, the contents, and then under the contents there's a bunch of subject matter. So you can go to the subject matter. For example, right in front of me, I have uh, depression, and t t testosterone and depression. To the right of that, there is an, a link to an abstract. So if you go to the testosterone and depression, go to the right, click here for abstract. You got the abstract. So you have basically all the abstracts that are indexed within this one document. Yeah. So this has got to be one of the most comprehensive men's health documents, not only that we have, but probably in existence. I don't know who else has, has put together that kind of a, of a bibliography or a, you know, a reference, reference guide. Yeah. So yeah. it is on, I want to let you, everyone know also, it's a continuing thing. You know, I, I find stuff, file them. It's a live sure. document. Yeah, it's a live document. So this is recently updated and it will be updated in the future. But that's uh, what I think is really uh, useful for people to find out what is the clinical information. So if you're calling on a new doctor, we get these kind of questions all the time, right? Yep. We get the question, what do I tell the doctor about this? Well, if you've got some clinical information with you, there's a very good chance your doctor wants to know what the heck is that clinical information. You know, if you've got literature that says clomiphen, for example, could be useful to treat low testosterone, you think, wow, how does that happen? It's a SERM. It's an estrogen receptor. Oh, okay, well, there's data on that. Here's how that works, doc. I've got good information on it. Uh, and anastrozole, similar situation. Do you have any information? Yes, I have literature on that. So the point of this document is to give everyone more educational points for themselves so they understand, so they can take better care of the patients, but also so that they can communicate better with the physicians. I guarantee you, physicians do not have time to read all of the data articles that come out. You know, if you, a lot of times you see the, they put the articles out on the counter because they don't have time to read them. And if they do have the time, it's often 10 or 11 o'clock at night. So what, what I'm saying is if you're keeping up to date and you have uh, a very good reference source, you're going to find doctors who want to talk to you and find out, okay, what do you have? And that will build the doctor's trust in your ability to take care of his patients. So effectively, you've built this repository of information to, to support their practice in right. men's health. Right. Because, yeah, it's, it, this is, I think we were talking about this earlier. We were talking about MD links and right. the utilization of that and, and, and just getting this almost overwhelming crush of data all the time. 
and you you've been using students and you've been sifting through it but you've right. you've you've stratified it into such a usable document that we can we can all tap into it so uh, bravo because i've been looking at it and you've mentioned it to me a few times that i've sent it out to a number of people so and everyone finds it incredibly useful i want you to know i want everyone to know that this is not all the literature there is so there's no. always more literature mm -hmm. coming out so if you have uh, a, a, an ability to find that literature, it's a tremendous benefit to you. One of the things I use is a free email service called MD, like medical doctor, MD links with an X, mdlinx.com, and it's a, it's a service that provides abstracts on brand new clinical articles. And once you go to MD links, you realize, oh my gosh, there's all kind of stuff coming out all the time. So a lot of it does not apply to me. So many days I'm simply clicking through and deleting because they may be talking about robotic use for prostate uh, treatments in an office, for example. But at other times, it's directly relatable to what I do and what I want to know. So the great benefit is that it's brand new information and there's a very good chance no one else has seen that article. For example, if you find a new article as an example that supports uh, the use of testosterone, just to name one thing, and, and treating uh, uh, urination at night, excess of urination at night, you find benefit from that, for example. That's a good chance your doctor hasn't seen that. So not only is it beneficial to you to know that, that you can counsel patients, but also to communicate with physicians. So the difference between MD Link's new information and what you can find, hundreds of thousands of articles indexed to PubMed, is that it often will take three to six months for an article to get to PubMed, where the things you find on this empty links are brand new. So this is where the evidence-based medicine model comes in. This is where we're, we're still moving forward. And it, it's such a great tip to, to do it. And so you just go on to MD Links and ask for the updates, and then yeah, you can you, actually choose the categories you want sent to you, right? So, for example, you sign up with MD Links, a very simple register, and then you will get emails sent to you. And so the emails will show you what those articles are. And then if they're of no interest, simply delete. They're an interest. If they are of interest, you click on them. You look to see what the abstract is. Now, there's another element, and that is can you get the full text? Can you get the full text? If you are a preceptor for a college of pharmacy, there's a very good chance a school that you precept for will allow you library access. If you precept and have students come through, your students have library access. And so you can get those full texts for those articles where normally you would just see the abstracts. And, and I find, again, that, that ability to have the full text is tremendously beneficial. I was telling Sebastian earlier that sometimes when I go to the library, you know, the open library, I don't necessarily know what information is there. I just start looking. I'll use subject matter like, for example, diendolyl methane in breast cancer. Do you have? I start looking to see what what articles there are. I start looking maybe for other things like 5-alpha reductase blockers to see if there's new evidence that show they prevent prostate cancer. Point is, you can do far more if you link yourself to a large library. Again, being a preceptor is one way to do it. Precepting students who have that is another way. Often at PCCA, uh, when we have students in our department, if someone calls, you have clinical data, first thing we do, have <clears> the <throat> students 
look. Uh, if the student is not here, those of us who have li library access will do that. But I just point out that that's a tremendous benefit if you have library access so you can get more than just the abstract. And I, and I think what Bruce's, his passion is starting to show through. He's, he's encouraging all of you to become preceptors in your community and, and, and help the students, but also derive a, a, a positive relationship with them because it does help everyone. It helps the entire pharmacy practice move forward, especially with, with respect to compounding and having that new data, that evidence to support those clinical decisions. And then always moving forward because the next new thing is going to be found not, not, uh, not by looking backwards, but, but by obviously seeing where the research is coming in and how we can apply it to our patients at hand. So cutting edge stuff, it's, it's great because you've been, you've been on the cutting edge for 23 years. Remember prior, and then now you came into it, and you're the one who's leading the cutting edge. So Mike was asking earlier, where do you see this going? But, I, but I'm curious, are you seeing a change in the population characteristics? Are we seeing more men coming into it asking those questions when you're talking to the other pharmacies? Are, are we seeing a change in perspective? Are more men embracing the fact that, yeah, I, I got to look after myself? Like, it, what are you seeing? It is a real slow slog to get men interested in their health other than, for example, hair loss. Men start losing hair, they get excited about that. They want, they want that to stop. But men slowing down is, is not necessarily something that they're excited to share, to talk to, even to talk to their doctor. So one of the things that happens with all of this, as time progresses and men have a better understanding, oh my gosh, this is natural, this happens. Other people have had this happen. They've been able to get treated and have a better outcome in their life. So a big, big uh, uh, resistant force is a male's hesitation to go to a doctor and seek care. And, and that is gradually changing. I, 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 I sometimes think about how other conditions in health care have sort of have been able to be pushed back. A treatment of depression, for example, just to name one thing. When Prozac and those kind of drugs came out, people began to accept that, oh, depression was something that could be treated. I don't have to be ashamed of it. It's not a personal failure, et cetera, et cetera. And so those things happen very gradually in terms of men's health. So men began to see this is something that, hey, I ought to be interested in my health. I should actually discuss it with someone who is a healthcare professional and, and see, see if there are benefits that can come to me from it. So I'm, I'm thinking along the lines of, we've got our 50% of our population, they're getting older. Where would you start with the education piece for those men? And we've talked about this, like yeah. getting invested in the health. And you're the expert. Where, how would you broach that subject as a clinical expert? How do you start? What it, you know, I think, and I've thought for a long time, an underdeveloped uh, use of community pharmacists is patient educators. Mm -hmm. Don't, a lot of pharmacists see, believe that only happens, for example, with uh, patient counseling on prescriptions or perhaps selling a nutritional supplement. And those are great things. But what I believe uh, can happen and what I encourage can happen is pharmacists to seek to, to seize the role of being more of a health educator. And you know whether you start out with one patient or whether you offer classes, and some pharmacies do that. I know that because uh, you know we, we hear about those things happen. But I think the idea of the pharmacist being a health educator 
someone who is readily available. You don't have to wait six months to make an appointment or three months. You can see the pharmacist most any time. I think that's a, something that is gradually moving forward, where uh, a, a man at an early age can become to educated. You know, if I were, for example, what would I do? I might start at classes for men like 30 to 35, for example, and, and just begin to educate them. Hey, you're, you're in good shape now. What can you do to keep that? Because almost certainly you're going to have gravitational pulls on you. You're not going to be quite as good a shape in 10 years as you are now unless you begin to seize control of it. And I'm, I'm looking at two gentlemen who do that, and I think that's wonderful. But there are a lot of people who don't do it. As I say, I think that education at an earlier point is, it would be really, really helpful to keep men fit, to help them understand that there's not going to be necessarily the perfect drug to cure everything that they get down the road. How can you remain fit? Uh, nutrition, for example, proper nutrition. I think that, that that is a really important developing role for a community educator, whether it is uh, a dietitian or nutritionist or a pharmacist who can take that role. But I think that's an incredibly important thing to have someone who can tell you not only, hey, you need to eat better, but how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you prepare meals that make you healthier? What about exercise? Again, I'm talking with people who right now who believe in exercise, but there are a lot of people who don't do that. They don't see the value or it, 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 it battles against other priorities in their life and it doesn't come out. So again, what do I try to do? I try to encourage people to learn a lot more about nutrition, to learn more about weight management, to learn more, much more about exercise. And I think that is, as far as I'm personally concerned, that is a move that I would strongly encourage. Bruce, I have a question. You mentioned the role of the pharmacist. Talking about nutrition or doing potentially consultations uh, within the pharmacy with certain men that are maybe not necessarily open to speaking with a physician. What about the marriage of uh, new, not necessarily nutrition, but natural products. Is there anything out there that there is some scientific evidence on that could help out any individual that doesn't maybe want to speak to a doctor and go through all this, but maybe realize that they are slowing down? Um, and are there any nutritional products that can make an impact that you have specific evidence on? You know, it, 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 there are a couple, again, the answer is yes, I believe that supplements can be an important part of it. I believe the pharmacist can be an important part. And something I'm beginning to see is the pharmacist having more access to testing uh, laboratory values. The pharmacist himself having more access to that. Uh, I recently did a presentation to a group of P4 students at the University of Houston on, on community pharmacy and it, what is happening. So in the course of doing that, I gave specific examples of what some outstanding pharmacists are doing. And so I was just really pleased to be able to show that laboratory testing is something that is emerging as a pharmacist role. As an example, to your, to your point, um, vitamin D, just to name a thing. Most people have no clue what their vitamin D levels are. Mm -hmm. And the way I view it is that lifestyles have changed over generations. You know, you go back a couple of generations and people are spending all the time out, outside. And that is not 
truth so much anymore. We dash from the house to the car, to the car to the building, back to the car. And so that is a reason, a reason why vitamin D levels, now that we're beginning to look at them, we're finding they're very low. But, uh, but the ability to have testing where you could show someone this is where you are low, and I believe that you could benefit. Here's some means that you could benefit. So again, it's the element of testing where you have some laboratory values and the ability to educate on that. So I strongly encourage, for example, pharmacists to become more knowledgeable. Omega-3s, another great example, to become more knowledgeable about omega-3s and what can you do in selenium and thyroid issues. So there are multiple, multiple things that can be done. And we are slowly moving, and I'm always thrilled to death when I talk to pharmacists who are currently doing things of that nature. So I'm going to ask the bold question. Is testosterone as a supplement by itself the be-all and end-all of men's health? Well, if, certainly not. Uh, <laughs> you know, I will say that many men benefit tremendously from testosterone if they're really, really low. And not every man can simply turn his life around. You know, it, it, it'd be easy to tell someone, oh my gosh, you're 60 pounds overweight. You need to do something about that. And the guy is having trouble getting up and down the stairs right now, much less dramatically turning his life around. So the, 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 what we want to do is to begin at an earlier age to show that there is much more that you can be done, that you can do. And while testosterone is certainly not the end all, the be all, it can help many, many people. But uh, again, to your point, uh, a wellness lifestyle is going to be an incredibly useful. And there are many men who, by maintaining a wellness lifestyle, do not suffer from low testosterone. So, you know, that is, that is a key element there. I think where I'm going with it is I know that there's T clinics, and we hear about uh, testosterone replacement, testosterone replacement. And I'm, I'm looking at this wealth of literature that's kind of like pointing back to testosterone. But what I've seen develop with your career and your knowledge is it's one part of the puzzle. Yes. Too much can actually have negative impact. Too little can certainly have right. negative impact. Um, even in the presence of optimal levels of testosterone, you can still have uh, negative health consequences sure. if you have other pre-existing conditions. And so I guess that's the part which is the education for the pharmacist is to understand the differences and the need and the, and the subtleties without just... Here's yeah. testosterone. Here's more testosterone. Like I think that to, that's somewhat to your point. Uh, a few months ago, I was I was actually it was the female uh, hormone consultation that came in, and the question that actually was to you: How much progesterone? How much estrogen should we give this woman? And I happened to have the patient's laboratory values in my hand. They sent them with me. patient had a hemoglobin A1C of about 16. Now, what is desired? Somewhere in the 6, for example. So they had an incredibly high hemoglobin A1C, which is a reflection of long-term sugar values, glucose values. In addition, the actual glucose for that day was like 268. In addition, the patient was considerably overweight because the height and weight showed on there. And so I'm looking at this hormone evaluation, and I'm thinking, my gosh, we're talking about how much estrogen and progesterone this lady was allowed to leave the doctor's office with no further information on what to do with her incredibly high hemoglobin A1C, a really high 
blood glucose level and, and, uh, you know, and being overweight. So those are uh, elements for disaster. So it, clearly testosterone is important, but it's, it, it's important in the whole context of our health. Mm-hmm. The whole context of our health, you know, what, what are we doing? Not just what do we do for nutritional supplements, not just whether we exercise, but our whole sense of what do we do to keep ourselves mentally healthy? What do we do for relaxation? What do we do to prevent stress, re- relieve stress? All those kinds of things. The point being that testosterone may not necessarily be a pure magic bullet, but we do have to assess the entire patient and we, exactly. we have to look at their overall health. Sure. And then we can address parts and parcels, but, but understanding still metabolic syndrome, A1C. Yeah. Yes, sir. To your point, I encourage a pharmacist to learn about laboratory values, even if you're not familiar. It's not that difficult. It's not that difficult. You, you know, you're not going to become an expert and certainly not going to suddenly become an endocrinologist, but to understand what does the TSH number usually reflect and what are high T3, T4 numbers perhaps suggesting? What does that blood sugar number mean? What is the fact that the patient is considerably overweight? What kind of burden is that placing on them? So I think that when I look at harm, uh, hormone evaluations, that's what I try to do, try to look at the whole patient. Clearly, I want to see what the hormone levels are, but it's in the context of who is this person? You know, what is their overall health? You know, do uh, are they seem to be in reasonably good health other than that? Or that this, this, this is just maybe not even the most important thing we should even be talking about with them. So I find that relative to patient health, uh, there's a tremendous need for patient education and sometimes someone to stop in and say, hey, I can help you. I have specific talents in this area, specific knowledge, and I want, to, I want you to be healthier. So I am gonna, I'm going to kind of take this in a slightly different direction. Um, a lot of people are probably looking for information on where to find this education. Again, I'm going to refer back to those documents you've, you've produced. Um, I'm going to point back, and I know that you've done a number of presentations within respect to PCCA um, symposiums and education events. I believe that we're doing an education uh, module with respect to men's health. But I'm going to suggest you can search up Bruce Biendo on our PCCA play. You can find some of his men's health talks. Those are available online. Uh, any one of his documents, you can go into the Apothegram articles, and you can actually search by name, Bruce, and find all of his men's health topics. You can actually dive into primary, secondary hypogonadism, uh, the, the DHT connection, the cancer, uh, uh, prostate cancer comments. There's actually a beautiful article about testosterone supplementation and the risk of heart attacks and your response article, which was so eloquently written and evidence-based, which we appreciate. And then lastly, you can get a hold of Bruce through our uh, clinical services team. And these are just some of, the, some of the points. And we were doing this sort of high-level talk because, Bruce, there's, there's almost too much information in, in a single talk. Um, I would urge everyone, again, in the same way, the, the education component is so, so useful, and you are, you are one of our primary sources of this education, so I thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for being here, Bruce. This is a definitely a, bit, a different spin on it, like I said in the beginning of the episode. We spoke so much throughout the history of the mortar and pestle talking about menopause, and we had a lot of physicians discussing the impacts of female BHRT, but thank you for providing a different angle and, and talking about men's health. Given the fact that there's probably so much more information, we might ask you to come back one day and give a more an advanced talk 
on, on testosterone and men's health as a whole. And because uh, I, I have a feeling this will probably be a very listened to podcast. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. I want to make uh, one last comment. Sure. Uh, I was telling Sebastian, I said, if I, there's one question I get more than any other question. It's very simply, how much topical testosterone do you, you use? What is, what is the starting dose? And I just want to make the case that it's individual. Not everyone needs the same thing. Mm -hmm. Some men are going to be just slightly low and just need a little bit of tweaking. Other men are going to be very, very low and have a long way to go. So think of whenever you're treating a patient. This is a person. This is an individual. This is not, uh, you know, a, a, an average that we, we pull out of the computer. Yeah, we can give suggested doses, but think of this person. What does this person need to be healthier? What is my goal in re making recommendations? What do I see, want to see happen for this patient? What does this patient expect to see happen? But so the point I'm making is that not just a standard, this is the dose for men. It varies a lot with the individual patient, how relatively healthy they are, how, how close they are to being close, how, how far away they are, and also, you know, and then we, we began a treatment and then we monitor. We monitor the patient to see how they're doing it. So it's not like we just start with them and forget about them. We continue to monitor them to see how they're doing. Are they healthier? Is this treatment working for them? Are there ways we can treat that patient? So the starting dose is simply that. It's a starting dose. This is where we start. But the monitoring is very, very critical. We do have some information in the in the packet, uh, the packet number 98474, 17-page packet, that does have specific information about what do you do, A, in screening, what do you do in monitoring. So I think that's incredibly useful uh, to know that you should be following up, not just think of a, a starting dose. Thank you, Bruce. I have a feeling people are going to have to listen to this episode twice. And that's a good thing. But appreciate you being on here. Thanks, Seb. Um, this was a great roundup, and, and thanks for covering this topic. For all of our listeners out there, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. As a reminder, as always, to please like and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, no matter what platform you are listening to. And as a reminder, always to follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Until next time, this is Mike Delisio, and thanks for listening.